from New York City, this is Louis Ada Caro Jr., and this is John Brown Today. John Brown's first and greatest success in the affairs of life came early to him when he ventured into northwestern Pennsylvania in 1826, when he was 26 years old, and became a leading citizen and businessman in the Meadville area. During that time, despite the great loss of his beloved first wife, Deanthe, Brown proved amazingly resilient, and he became a leading figure in the community, operating a successful tannery facility that only came to an end after he was offered a promising opportunity back in Ohio. However, with his return to Ohio in 1835, the promise of prosperity vanished when the business partnership that had been offered to him was reneged, leaving the disappointed widower to fend for his young new wife, Mary, and their family. Stymied and then snared by conditions beyond his control, he repeatedly rushed into a variety of business ventures, some of them concurrent, but none of them successful. By 1841, the national money supply had fallen significantly, and banks in the South and West bore the brunt of this decline. Thrashing about, John Brown stumbled further with downturns and disappointments in land speculation, livestock sales, and other ventures that either failed or came up short, leaving him ensnared in more debt and lawsuits. In 1839, with heavy financial burdens and taxes due, he borrowed money that he could not repay, and then, in desperation, availed himself of the funds of a trusted New England client to pay his debts. Despite the recklessness and, quote, extremity, end quote, of his actions, as he put it afterward, he had presumed to replace the money in less than a month because he had expected a large payment from another source that he believed was dependable. Instead, he was left, quote, waiting in painful anxiety, end quote, until he had no recourse but to confess and throw himself upon the mercy of his defrauded client. Fortunately for Brown, the client was a friendly Christian man who sympathized with him and his difficult economic circumstances. Notwithstanding this embarrassing episode in his life, it witnesses to something about John Brown's character that the very same associate continued to work with him afterward. In turn, he never forgot the man's kindness and endeavored to send him money here and there at times throughout the rest of his life. Even in his last will, in 1859, Brown instructed that some inherited money be sent to his former client. What makes this period even more difficult to assay is the fact that Brown continued to knock on virtually any door of opportunity, from cattle sales to breeding racehorses, and from land settlement and surveying ventures to nourishing caterpillars and manipulating cocoons as a silk farmer. Despite his perennial optimism, nevertheless it seemed that financial recovery evaded John Brown at every turn. As he described this period in retrospect, it was a time of, quote, poverty, trials, discredit, and sore afflictions, end quote. Beside the loss of four young children in 1843, he had already lost two children from his first marriage, and he and Mary would lose two more infants in 1846 and 1852, with another child fatality from a household scalding accident in 1849. Let us presume on a merciful providence, if presumption it be, a little longer, he wrote to a troubled friend in this period. Let us try and trust all with a wise and gracious God, and all will be well, some way or other. End quote. As if to reward his trust, some way or other, came about for Brown when one of his former associates, a prosperous Ohioan, 
sought him out for a business venture. Despite having lost $6,000 in a land deal that had gone wrong under Brown's agency, the wealthy Heman Oviatt of Richfield, Ohio, still believed that he was thoroughly honest and invited Brown into a tannery partnership. In retaining John Brown as the supervisor of his flocks and operations, Oviatt found him at his best, and the partnership flourished. In this successful role, too, Brown drew deeply from the roots of his youthful interest in livestock and breeding, with renewed confidence and resources. He began traveling to other counties and states nearby to interview wool growers, study their flocks, and purchase quality livestock. Writing in 1848, Brown described how he had begun anew after having declared bankruptcy in 1842, and now having prospered to the point of paying, quote, a good deal on my old debts, end quote. Providence continued smiling upon him, however, when an even more prosperous opportunity arose in response to his widening reputation as a specialist in the fine sheep business. In early 1844, Brown left Oviatt to enter a partnership with Simon Perkins Jr., an Akron, Ohio magnate who owned a large farm and flock. Perkins was himself heir to a considerable fortune and possessed more privilege than business acumen. But considering the depths of Brown's failure, a partnership with Perkins marked almost a triumph. I think this is the most comfortable and the most favorable arrangement of my worldly concerns that I have had, he wrote to his eldest son, John Jr. Indeed, the partnership with Perkins enabled Brown to develop his partner's flock, travel more extensively throughout the East, and rise to such proficiency and reputation in his field as to become one of the foremost experts on fine sheep and wool in the country by the late 1840s, something, parenthetically, that you don't usually hear from Brown's detractors because they simply don't know it. In 1849, the editor of a notable New England agricultural journal thus declared that John Brown was among the three leading authorities in the nation regarding fine sheep and wool. Now, given their bias and lack of in-depth research, prominent historians in the 20th century overlooked his notable comeback, instead preferring to make unwarranted judgments. For instance, Paul Engel, a leading Lincoln scholar, thus opined that Brown's only real success was in procreation, since he had 20 children while Civil War scholar Alan Nevins, who barely scratched the surface of Brown's life, alleged Brown's insanity despite the absence of any evidence. In the early 1970s, the Southern historian David Potter likewise bequeathed a similar twaddle in his posthumously celebrated study of the antebellum crisis, baselessly opining that Brown was a categorical failure, as well as a hypocrite, who was fixated on his own self-made, quote, fantasy. End quote. This misrepresentation was typical of Brown's treatment by historians throughout the 20th century, an abuse that went a long way in miseducating the public and laying the groundwork for similarly biased portrayals in film and television. Of course, none of these scholars would have memorialized such slipshod conclusions if they had involved the reputation of Abraham Lincoln or some sainted Civil War general like Robert E. Lee. The prevalence of negative portrayals of Brown in the 20th Century Academy was a cultural marker with implications that went far beyond the subject. The failure to engage Brown as a historical figure with depth and fairness not only paralleled the lack of attention to black history among white academics, but also the broader influence of lost cause, so-called interpretations from Southern writers, 
which both justified and sentimentalized the slaveholders, who had nearly destroyed the Union by violent secession. The Southern intellectual not only held no brief for John Brown, but was committed to rewriting the history of slavery in the Civil War. As David Blight puts it in his marvelous Race and Reunion, lost cause Southern writers in the late 19th century and early 20th century not only sentimentalized slavery, but transformed thinking about the Civil War into a romantic national pastime. In so doing, they were setting their own terms for the reunion of the North and South, rendering the latter as, quote, greater in defeat, end quote, and requiring that the nobility and glory of the fallen South become a, quote, national heritage, end quote. As Blight observes, however, this ideological coup could not have been accomplished without the support of Northern editors and at the price of reinvigorating white supremacy. However, the real backdrop of white nationalism and reunion was the Southerners' quote, growing rage to separate the races, to crush black liberty, and to kill alleged black criminals in hideous rituals. End quote. This sentimental view of the South and slavery was pervasive and continued to influence the popular mind of white society well into the 20th century. As R. Blakesley Gilpin observes, the lost cause sentiments were further updated in the 1920s by a number of influential Southern writers, known as the Agrarians, who gave, quote, the romanticized Confederacy the authority of history, end quote. Moving beyond the siege mentality, of older Southerners, this new breed of Southern writer rejected Klan terrorism and Confederate monuments in favor of using literature and history as a means of renovating the South. The result of their influence was to blunt the harsh realities of black enslavement, impute hubris to the North, and make the Civil War appear as if it were tragically unnecessary. As Gilpin also notes, by mid-century, the neo-Southern revision had, quote, found overwhelming national sympathy, end quote, not only in romanticizing the slave South, but in reinventing, quote, the zeitgeist of our national past, end quote. With the promotion of fallacies like the valorous South, the avoidable tragedy of the Civil War, and the tolerable inconvenience of black enslavement, it's no wonder that John Brown was also portrayed as shifty and hypocritical at best. These themes were even more strongly manifested in popular culture in the mid-20th century. Even a basic review of popular movies from that era will reveal that Hollywood had quickly followed suit. Quite infamously, D.W. Griffith beautified the slave South and the racist Ku Klux Klan in his 1915 motion picture, The Birth of a Nation, which was based upon the novel The Klansman, written by Thomas Dixon. Dixon likewise tried to attack Brown in a screenplay partly entitled A Story of the Paranoic Who Caused the Great War, which happily never came to production. As historian David Reynolds observes in his book America, Empire of Liberty, A New History, in 1939, Gone with the Wind further valorized the South at the movies, rendering enslaved black people as, quote, mostly dutiful and content, yet clearly incapable of an independent existence, end quote. Indeed, it was films like The Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind that revised the popular conception of slavery at a time when the nation was in the heyday of segregation. This was accomplished by liberating whites from the burden of the South's real past by allowing them, quote, 
and escape into flights of romantic nostalgia, end quote. So it's not surprising that John Brown would be damaged within a prominent cultural medium. It was so given over to the glorification of the Old South. In 1940, Santa Fe Trail embedded Brown quite negatively in Hollywood's narrative based upon a screenplay written by the Virginia-born Robert Buckner. As Peggy Russo has written, while Buckner's screenplay called for the Hitlerization of John Brown by portraying him as an insane murderer, this intent was somewhat blunted by the thankful intervention of the film's Hungarian Jewish director, Michael Curtis, who gave Brown, who was played by Raymond Massey, a sympathetic but fictional speech on the gallows toward the end of the movie. Still, Santa Fe Trail remained a Southern romance that portrayed Brown negatively while glorifying the leaders of the Confederacy in an attempt to, quote, balance Northern and Southern sentiment on the issue of slavery, end quote. While subsequent inclusion of Brown in movies and television series throughout the rest of the century was somewhat varied, his portrayal was always burdened by the notions of mental instability and violent fanaticism so engendered in the era of segregation. Likewise, Hollywood generally continued to follow the pattern of both valorizing and southernizing the Western. From the archetypal film Shane, 1953, about a heroic southern gunfighter, to a good number of films and television programs that glorified the racist criminal Jesse James. No matter that Brown had fought to end slavery and pushed back against the terrorist violence of pro-slavery thugs in Kansas, he was inevitably viewed and branded as violent, while Jesse James was portrayed sympathetically, if not heroically, as a kind of Robin Hood figure. The result was that John Brown was first trivialized and then rendered innocuous in the same century when African Americans were struggling to reclaim ground that had been taken back in the long night of Jim Crow segregation. The bias against Brown, which went together with the white conservative mood in that period, goes a long way in explaining why so many whites may yet have an uneasy feeling about him. And in the case of the evangelicals, this is particularly interesting since Brown himself was by all accounts theological and evangelical. Even the conservative Brown researcher Boyd Stutler, who I have talked about previously, observed this bias mid-century when he wrote that Lincoln and Civil War scholars were stubbornly clinging, quote, to untenable ground in evaluating John Brown, end quote. Little has changed since then, which is why an eminent Lincolnian like Alan Gelso would apparently go out of his way to slander John Brown as a hateful and a deeply violent figure, and the popular Civil War writer, the late Tony Horwitz, would strain at the bit in his efforts to suggest the abolitionist was an Al-Qaeda prequel and a bearded fundamentalist. Over time, Brown's successful path had led him from the farm to the factory, where he discovered that the manufacturers of New England in the 1840s held an unfair and advantageous control of the wool business, especially in their prerogative of grading and pricing wools. 
Furthermore, Brown found that the condition of many wool growers was worsened by a lack of organization and efficiency, especially since new foreign markets were making quality alternatives available to manufacturers. So in response, Brown began to work to rally wool growers in eastern Ohio, western Pennsylvania, and western Virginia especially. Beginning with a convention in 1847, Brown introduced innovations and improvements for production and sales to these same farmers. Still, the more he traveled and studied the landscape of the wool business, the more he felt it necessary to offset the powerful manufacturers of New England. To do so, he proposed a commission operation that could act as a clearinghouse for the growers by grading and selling their wools at fair prices before the manufacturers did. In establishing the Perkins and Brown Commission Wool House in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1846, he moved once again to the margins of his expertise. Yet it was a move consistent with his lifelong inclination to take up for the underdog. In his childhood, Brown was known to have fought with bullies. In business, the bullies were the wealthy New England manufacturers. He did not know there were yet other bullies to fight, even to the shedding of blood. Unfortunately, in his contest with the manufacturers, Brown had neither the economic power nor the experience needed to take them on. Yet he could hardly have counted the cost in advance, given that he had yet to learn a hard lesson about the self-interest of the manufacturers, including some that he knew personally and respected. Their ability and determination to thwart his efforts to empower the wool growers proved stunning to him. The manufacturers had long enjoyed the economic high ground over the growers by pricing their wools, and Perkins and Brown naturally represented a threat to this advantage. As Brown eventually discovered, however, the manufacturers had taken strategic action to undermine Perkins and Brown, such as purchasing from alternative foreign markets, stalling payments until threatened with litigation, quote, nibbling, as Brown put it, at Perkins and Brown's wools without making purchases, and even slowing down factory production and laying off their own workers. It is also quite likely that one of Brown's employees was a mole in the firm who was paid by the manufacturers to disrupt the pricing process. In John Brown's own estimate, the Perkins and Brown operation in Springfield, Massachusetts, had become the seat of war with the manufacturers by 1849. To make matters worse, the firm was increasingly frustrated by the criticisms, whining, and impatient demands of the wool growers themselves, who wanted cash, and they wanted cash fast, some of them eventually proving unfaithful to the operation as a result. Pressured from both sides, then, Brown felt goaded to desperation, those are his words, by the growers while contending with all the obstacles thrown against him by the New England manufacturers who maintained control of significant portions of domestic and imported wools. As business declined, Brown had one last hope to save the firm by circumventing manufacturers in the United States and establishing a market for his wools in Europe. I shall despair, he concluded in a letter, unless European manufacturers come to our relief. End quote. While hoping for the future of the wool business, John Brown was looking toward other horizons, particularly regarding black people. 
in younger days when helping fugitives from slavery. He also entertained an idea of educating young African Americans. But while living in Springfield, he doubtless had been attracted to conversations going on within the black community, conversations that perhaps prefigured later debates concerning the best domestic and economic strategies within the African American community in the early 20th century. Passionate about any possibility of aiding blacks, John Brown took up the cause of black leaders like Willis Hodges, a Brooklynite who believed free African-Americans should abandon the resistant, racist, urban context of the North in favor of agrarian settlements. Hodges was particularly hopeful that free brethren in his home state of New York would take advantage of some land grants in the Adirondacks that had been provided by the wealthy abolitionist tycoon Garrett Smith of Peterborough, New York. Although his hands were still quite full in managing the wool business in Springfield, John Brown leapt at the chance to encourage and support a good cause in support of black people. By 1848, he had not only taken it upon himself to embark on a surveying tour of the donation lands in the Adirondacks, but he had presented himself to Garrett Smith personally, stating his intention to move on to those lands to mentor and support black settlers in their hard transition from urban to rural and mountain life. By this time, he was not only quite familiar with many contemporary black leaders, sometimes even standing in between them in their differing viewpoints, such as the case of Willis Hodges and Frederick Douglass. As an experienced surveyor, Brown had undertaken a rigorous observation of the Adirondack lands and submitted his report gratis to a meeting of black land grantees in Troy, New York. In appreciation, the grantees issued a resolution that was published thanking, quote, Mr. Brown of Springfield, Massachusetts, the distinguished friend and firm supporter of the colored man, end quote. If he was hopeful of improving his wool dealings along a European route, John Brown must have been quite thrilled at the prospect of the Adirondacks. In January 1849, he wrote excitedly to his aged father in Ohio, they had visited, quote, a number of good colored families already settled on the Smithlands. I can think of no place where I think I would sooner go, all things considered, he wrote, than to live with these poor despised Africans to try and encourage them and show them a little so far as I am capable how to manage, end quote. He was yet hopeful for improvements in Springfield, so there's no sense that he was thinking of his role in the Adirondacks as a retreat from the wool business. Perhaps he had reimagined his youthful vision of acting as a prosperous evangelical advocate on behalf of African Americans. It may be that he thought of finally establishing his contemplated school for black youth in the Adirondacks, even as he cast his lot to live with them in the cold mountain region. Perhaps, too, he thought the black settlement might be a good resource for him to recruit men for another purpose, a plan that he was quietly nurturing in mind, a plan to overthrow slavery by casting it into disarray and by initiating a liberation movement in the South. In the spring of 1849, Brown moved his family from Springfield to North Elba, New York, close by contemporary Lake Placid. Moving them into a rented farmhouse, Brown put himself amidst the struggling black colony in hopes of encouraging the settlers, even as he hoped to find a solution for the troubled cause of the wool growers. In late summer, 1849, Brown secured his ticket, packed his suitcase, and shipped his wools in advance before boarding a steamship for Europe. Upon arrival in England, not only was he embarrassed by the condition of the American wools that had been packed by the wool growers themselves, 
but soon he realized that the European manufacturers were little different from their counterparts in the United States. A capitalist is a capitalist. At worst, Brown discovered that the English held a decidedly low view of his American wools, even before they were presented. From London, he wrote to his son, I have a great deal of stupid, obstinate prejudice to contend with, end quote. Even the continental manufacturers in France and Belgium, who had expressed a more favorable opinion of his wools, ultimately proved a disappointment as well. The hard lesson of his European venture was that manufacturers there were just as likely to hold back from purchasing if they could get better prices from their own colonial markets. Perkins understood that the failure of the firm was quite beyond their control, offering only, as Brown put it, the fullest assurance of his undiminished confidence and personal regard, end quote. Indeed, the demise of Perkins and Brown did not end their partnership, which simply reverted to its original form, where Brown managed Perkins' large farm and flock in Akron. Despite the failure of the Wool Commission operation, Brown wrote happily to his family that his rich partner is, quote, wholly averse to any separation of our business or interests, end quote. So Brown was not ruined by the failure of the Wool Commission. He was still in the wool business. The continuation of their partnership presented a mixed blessing to the hopeful abolitionist since he continued to enjoy both a profession that he loved and the income and benefits that came with it, including a comfortable residence for his family on the Perkins estate in Akron. On the other hand, Brown would have to pull out of the black colony in the chilly Adirondacks, a departure that must have personally frustrated him and further sidelined his hopes of organizing his anti-slavery plans. Furthermore, his perception of importance as a mentor to the black settlers was not entirely a matter of self-satisfaction for Brown. The experimental black colony in Essex County, New York, known as Timbuktu, had struggled from the onset. Black land grantees, all of them free people from cities throughout New York State, faced a range of ongoing challenges. From the opposition of racists to the schemes of local swindlers and the hard conditions of life in the Adirondacks, the transition to agrarian life was quite daunting for black urbanites. The presence of the Browns had at least been an encouragement and doubtless also was a resource for the most determined of the grantees, especially since the colony was vulnerable. The decline of the population of Timbuktu may have been inevitable, given the challenging environment as well as a lack of resources, expertise, and systemic support that framed this experiment. But when Brown was obligated to abandon the colony and relocate to Akron in 1851, this probably was a most discouraging blow to the struggling black settlement. Of course, he would return, but by the time John and Mary Brown could get free of the Perkins partnership and return to Timbuktu in 1855, the community's irreversible decline was well underway. From New York City, this has been Louis A. DeCaro Jr., and this was... John Brown today.